Welcome to a new episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, and Cadence 13. Now, our show is only as good as our listeners. Y'all fact-check me, provide new insight, give your opinions. And to become a contributor, simply go to jenkspod.com slash contributors or call 413-471-2975. Thank you for being a listener and a voice for the podcast. Andrew Stanton is really good at winning Oscars. He also really loves his wife. He is legitimately brilliant. Sometimes we say something or someone is brilliant, but we don't really mean it. Stanton, however, is. The thing is, he sort of disagrees with me. He claims to think he's more of like a kid in middle school. What I call, for lack of a better term, sixth grade level, I just... um the best way I can explain it is my brain understands things in checker moves, not chess moves. <laughs> but I'm attracted to how sophisticated and clever chess moves are. Andrew Stanton tells stories for a living, and he does it really well. In eighth grade, he came up with an idea to tell a story about a fish. He jotted it down on paper and passed it along to a girl he had a crush on. Well, 30 years later, when he won an Oscar... For Finding Nemo, he got up on stage and said, To my wife, Julie, I wrote it to you in a note in eighth grade, and now I can say it in front of a billion people. I love you. When it came time for Andrew Stanton to sort out what he wanted to do next, he found out that the rights to his favorite childhood book were available. He wanted to make it into a movie, and Walt Disney Pictures said they'd make it. Its title? John Carter. The film would be Andrew's first live-action movie, as in it wouldn't be animation or CGI. He'd be working with a massive cast and crew, on set or on location. The brilliant Andrew Stanton had a $250 million budget, the biggest budget at the time in the history of cinema. He got to choose who he wanted to star in his film. He had Disney's prowess and backing. He was planning two blockbuster sequels. It was the next Harry Potter or Star Wars. There were talks of a theme park. This was going to be huge. Andrew Stanton had a movie that ended up being called A Large Dollop of Oatmeal-y Sick Person's Poop. A movie that was reported to have lost $200 million. The biggest, if not one of the biggest, box office flops in film history. And what did Andrew Stanton say after the film's release? Well, he never talked about it. Ever. Until now. It fe- it's, it's a weird feeling to talk about it because I never really ever have talked about it since it all went down. Yeah. And so it's a real pleasure to talk about it honestly and objectively without bias uh, on either side. This has become a journey that's taken me from Steve Jobs' Pixar Studios for an interview with Andrew Stanton to speaking with an ex-CIA spy who was deployed in Russia and led a revolution in Indonesia to a phone call with a storytelling guru. I've examined the conspiracy theories that surround John Carter. Some have thought that it wasn't destined to fail that it was a good movie, but that there were higher powers, people with agendas that went out of their way to make sure the blockbuster was just a bust. 
At times, it's felt like a story about old-school tales of Hollywood deception to a story about how successful people face failure. Sounds cheesy for sure. To a story about different management styles in the workplace, something I never thought I'd be particularly interested in. Ultimately, this has become a story that examines the anatomy of a box office flop, even when the person in charge is brilliant. Dear John Carter, what really happened? Since it was released in 2013, I've always been fascinated by this film, John Carter. And until recently, I hadn't even seen it. I just remember being in a cab in New York City and seeing posters for it all over bus stops in the West Village. I remember being in a meeting at MTV and people whispering that Taylor Kitsch was down the hall promoting the new Disney blockbuster. But I think I've always been fascinated by the film because almost before the movie was even out, people would talk about how bad it was, how it was the most expensive film in the history of movie making, and how it lost all of its money. What struck me was that some people seemed to rejoice in such an overwhelming failure. If you haven't seen the movie, again titled after its main character, John Carter, here's the synopsis from Disney. The film tells the story of a war-weary former military captain, John Carter, played by Taylor Kitsch, who I love, who is inexplicably transported to Mars, where he becomes reluctantly embroiled in a conflict of epic proportions amongst the inhabitants of the planet, including Tars Tarkas, played by Willem Dafoe, a giant green warrior creature, and the captivating princess Dejah Thoris, played by Lynn Collins. In a world on the brink of collapse, Carter rediscovers his humanity when he realizes that the survival of Barsoom, which is Mars, and its people rests in his hands. The film John Carter is based on a series of novels from the Barsoom series. These series began with a novel titled A Princess of Mars and ended with John Carter of Mars. And so, I want to introduce you to an important person in this story, and that is Edgar Rice Burroughs, otherwise known by his initials ERB, the prolific writer throughout the first half of the 1900s, perhaps best known for writing Tarzan, certainly an empire in its own right. In fact, Burroughs was the best-selling author of the 20th century. His books are translated into 58 languages. He, and this is hard to believe, outsold Hemingway, Faulkner, and Fitzgerald combined. Ray Bradbury once said, Burroughs is the most influential writer in the history of the world. I spoke with film guru and legend Robert McKee about this. Edgar Rice Burroughs invented sci-fi. Edward R. Burroughs doesn't have that household name like the other writers, likely because Burroughs didn't write classic American literature in the way that we think of a Fitzgerald or Hemingway. Burroughs stuck with sci-fi. What I was really surprised by in my early research was how much of an influence Burroughs' John Carter series was to some of the most well-known directors of our time and how the book inspired the movies they made. Superman, Avatar, Star Wars all, obviously, hugely successful film franchises. Everyone from James Cameron to George Lucas cite John Carter as novels that struck a deep chord with them at an early age. And so, 
It's not an exaggeration to say that Burroughs and John Carter is responsible for some of the greatest superheroes and superhero films this world has ever known. This leads me to my first question. Why wasn't a John Carter film made years earlier? Andrew Stanton's film was released in 2013. What took so long in the first place? How did all of these other stories that influenced Superman and Star Wars and Avatar get made before it did? And ultimately, does this have anything to do with why the movie failed at the box office when it did eventually come out? Don't forget, it's not like Burroughs' films had some tarnished reputation when it came to his books being turned into films. Burroughs had huge success with Tarzan. In 1918, the adaptation of Tarzan into a film made $1.5 million. It was only the sixth film in the history of cinema to make over a million dollars. A big part of the answer as to why it wasn't made is actually kind of simple. No matter what era and no matter which way you constructed a budget, to produce John Carter as a film would cost a lot of money. The film takes place on Earth during the late 1800s and then in Mars where there's a massive war taking place. It requires futuristic battleships, epic fight scenes, all different kinds of Martians, these Roman Empire Colosseum style gladiator scenes, and all of it is meant to look and feel real. At least Superman is on Earth the whole time, and he's not jumping around from the 19th century to the future. While still alive, Burroughs attempted making John Carter a few times, but it just financially never worked out. Burroughs passed away in 1950. Since his death, people have attempted making the movie several times. To make a long story short, most of these fell through because the film would have just cost too much money. The stars attached at one point or another to star in John Carter included Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, and Julia Roberts. Writers have included not just some of Hollywood's finest, such as the writers of everything from Pirates of the Caribbean to Back to the Future, but some of the finest writers of our time, like Game of Thrones' George R.R. R. Martin. Film directors attached have included Robert Rodriguez, director of classics like Sin City to blockbusters like Spy Kids, to John Favreau, director of Iron Man 1 and 2, and The Jungle Book. In my estimation, over the course of about 60 years, there have been nearly 20 drafts, likely upwards of 30, more than 15 writers, and has been shut down multiple times because the film, at the time, would have been the most expensive in the history of cinema. Now, don't forget, while this scenario with John Carter is a bit extreme, talking about 100 years to make, movies going through rewrites and taking years to get off the ground isn't really unheard of. Deadpool took nearly 12 years to make with Ryan Reynolds attached as the star, and it wasn't even made until he shot test footage, the footage got leaked somehow, potentially a What Really Happened episode, and fans from around the world loved it. And two months later, the movie suddenly had the money, and was being made. Now, while John Carter keeps not getting made into a movie, it's time to welcome back to my story, Andrew Stanton, our resident brilliant filmmaker. Remember this about Andrew. In my research about him, he certainly loves his wife. He talks about her a lot. And after meeting him, this guy loves to talk about story. Because I always have this saying, like, everybody's wired up to go to the church of something, and some people it's actually church, and some people it's beer, some people it's sports. 
And, uh, you know, everybody's wired up to, to worship something. And I think, and I look back and I go, oh, my, I, I, it's all, it's clearly the, the Venn diagram over all my life from like first memory on is, yeah, it's telling stories. Going into this, I hadn't seen a lot of animation films or Andrew Stanton movies. I've now seen all of his movies. I've noticed you always care about an Andrew Stanton character, and he always slips in meaningful subtext, whether it's obesity, consumerism, or the environment. What is also impossible to ignore? Stan's films make a lot of money. At 30 years old, Stan co-wrote Toy Story, the first feature film produced by Pixar, and the first feature-length computer-animated film. It made $373 million. At 31 years old, he made A Bug's Life, which I think is a totally underrated movie, which made $363 million. Then, seeing as Toy Story was such a hit, the next movie he wrote was Toy Story 2. You definitely know things are going well when your third movie is a sequel to your first. Box office gross, $497 million. Then he wrote Monsters, Inc., another hit, $577 million. Then he wrote and directed Finding Nemo, which won an Oscar and made $940 million. You can't make this stuff up. And then his next film was a failure. No, I'm just kidding. His next film was WALL-E. The film made over $530 million, won an Oscar for Best Animated Film, and is on the list, a lot of lists, as one of the best films of the 21st century. And the main character is a trash compactor that doesn't even talk. I originally wrote two pages about the values of this film and how it's an example of cinema at its finest, but I'll definitely save you. Next up is Toy Story 3, which made a cool $1 billion. The point is, our resident brilliant filmmaker is crushing it, to the tune of over $5 billion. Andrew Stanton is one of the most important people in the history of Pixar Studios, along with other people like Steve Jobs, who we sometimes forget is the founder of Pixar. Nonetheless, Pixar changed movie history, and Andrew Stanton is a big part of its history. If you don't believe me, believe this. Oh yeah, believe this. His first few films that I've mentioned made over $5 billion. $5 billion. When I realized I wanted to do an episode about a quote-unquote box office flop and thought about John Carter, I did what I like to do, which is become obsessed. That's why I go to therapy twice a week and use that app Calm as much as possible. I watched the movie twice, then watched it with the director's commentary. I read the novels it's based on, watched most of the press interviews, his TED Talk, cast member interviews, and all of the -the behind-the-scenes material. I learned random info. Stanton was born in 1965. At that point, I thought, well, maybe I should email him, see if he'd do an interview. But I knew he likely wouldn't because I had noticed in my research that Stanton hadn't talked about the movie essentially since it was released. He had made other films, but for a famous filmmaker, it just never seemed like he had addressed it. I emailed him on a Saturday morning in June and then went to play basketball in Central Park. And to be clear, I didn't email him anything that was bullshit, purporting to be some hardcore John Carter fan or that I liked or didn't like the movie, but I did sincerely admire the film, the ambition the movie and Stanton had, the intricacies, the way in which the cast and crew talk so highly about him. It had all of the markings of a hit film. 
Of course, I also told him we'd discuss the what really happened of it all. Why did the movie end up with the perception it now has? He responded to that email in exactly two hours and 15 minutes. Of course, in his second sentence, he was already mentioning his wife. As I just said to my wife, I'm happy to talk to anyone that gets it about Carter. Stanton talked about a time that could work and ended the email with, really appreciate the attention and respect you've shown for the film. It was made out of pure fanboy, film love, and nothing more. I was leaving the game in Central Park when I saw this response. I had just been texted by a woman I thought I had a chance with that, as it turns out, I didn't have a chance with, a reoccurring theme, and this perked me up. Stan was my window into the movie and what happened. I wouldn't take what he said as gospel, but it was one person's perspective of this whole thing. The one person who was there from the conceit of this movie and there until the very end. I spend a lot of my time researching books, articles, old newspapers. For the stories I tell on this podcast, context is everything. Sorting out the right sources is everything. Our episode on Muhammad Ali saving a guy from jumping off a building, the death of Michael Jordan's father, or even Winston Churchill's depression all required a thorough examination of how the media reported these figures or events. And one magazine that I think has really the best writing is The New Yorker. In fact, I'm reading an article they did on Boris Yeltsin, the complicated former Russian president. We'll be doing an episode on soon about the time he was found. I shouldn't laugh, but he was found drunk demanding pizza while visiting President Bill Clinton. With The New Yorker, you can get the best writing anywhere, everywhere. Home delivery of the print edition each week, on the go with the New Yorker Today app or via Google News. The digital version of the magazine is available on your iPad, iPhone, Nook, or Kindle. NewYorker.com publishes 15 to 20 news stories each day. And they didn't even tell me to put that in bold or underline. I'm just making a point here. 15 to 20 news stories that aren't available in the print magazine. The complete online archive, this is the part I like, features every issue of the print magazine since 1925. I think the following Mark Twain quote is particularly of note. With all this in mind, advertisements such as these contain the only truths to be relied on in a newspaper. That is why don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash WRH. Listeners of this podcast save 20% when they enter code WRH, as in what really happened, with this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. Plus, get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. Ooh, You can choose between print, digital, or a combo, print and digital, subscription. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash WRH. I flew out to Oakland, California, and met with Stanton at Pixar. In my interview, while I was asking Stanton about the process of making those first few movies and how he made over $5 billion, he kept circling back to what he learned from those around him. And of course, you'll notice always weaving in his wife in some way. Man, Andrew Stanton is in love. Your boy Jenks can't even get a decent text response. I just, um, 
the best way I can explain it is my brain understands things in checker moves, not chess moves, <laughs> but I'm attracted to how sophisticated and clever chess moves are. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it just, I, I learned a long time ago that I, I didn't, um, I was just telling my wife this the other day, actually, I realized there were sort of two moments in the nineties that when I combined them kind of influenced my embracing that part of me. One was working with Steve Jobs all the time and being in all these meetings. And one of the things, if, if he was told something or, or given something to chew on, if he didn't have an answer for it right away, if he was asked something, he had no problem just sitting there forever until he did. Huh. And it was, it's a very strange thing to experience, like just letting a whole room sit there a minute's a very long time if that's the case yeah um until he had something worth saying back and he got his thoughts in order and the confidence in that in just like that's who he was and that's what he needed to do uh, because he cared more about where the result was going to go than whether he was following protocol the other moment that shaped stan's way of thinking was Around the time he and his team were casting an actor to be the voice of the character Woody in Toy Story, they had cast Tom Hanks. And so Stanton went to see Hanks while he was shooting the film Philadelphia, which co-starred Denzel Washington. And there's a scene where he comes early on to get a lawyer and he goes to Denzel Washington and Denzel Washington says, explain it to me like I'm a sixth grader. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I was in my 20s and I thought I, I, I thought I had to act old to just impress everybody else. I didn't know I could change the rules and just go, you know what? I'm only this smart, so you're going to have to come down to my level. Right. And so between those two sort of examples, I, I learned to just uh, not be apologetic for how my brain works. And it's serviced me so well ever since. Uh, particularly in the area of having to uh, communicate to other people and, 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 and to understand things because there's so much, so much of your time spent uh, is problem solving. Uh, particularly for us, it's so much story problem solving and it's very abstract. There's really no right or wrongs. There's just, this is not working and this isn't working. It's, it's very much like trying to make something funny. You, you don't get too into the weeds because when you, if you're afraid the you're superstitious, you might kill it for mm. analyzing it too much. Yeah. But there is a certain level of understanding something. So you know how to correctly diagnose the problem and then fix it. And I've never looked back ever since then. So that's what that all means. Somebody once told me that there are two types of intelligent people. People who make simple things sound complicated, and people who make complicated things sound simple. Stan learned at an early age the value of the second by none other than Denzel Washington and Steve Jobs. Pretty, pretty good. As Stan continues writing and directing hits, Dick Cook, chairman of Walt Disney Studios, is on the phone with Stan and says some version of, So, what are you thinking? What movie would you like to do next? Stanton explained he had recently heard that the rights to John Carter of Mars was available. After all of the different attempts at making the movie, it was back on the market. And Stanton, since he was a young kid, loved John Carter of Mars. Or as he put it, These books were my Harry Potter. Like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, Stanton's plan from the beginning was that this would be a trilogy which makes sense given almost every chapter of John Carter of Mars could be its own movie. 
So this first film would kick off two more films. And it's not like if it goes well, that's what would happen. The plan is set in stone. When it goes well, there will be two more films. On the director's commentary, Stanton and his producers talk about what they'll be filming in the next couple of movies. According to an LA Times article, they are also preparing a theme park. And so Dick Cook eventually signs off on a $250 million film. And this would just be to make the movie. With marketing, it would easily amount to $350 million, likely much more. Now, you might be thinking, well, $350 million isn't that much, but the budget wasn't figured out until around 2009-2010. It would have been the most expensive movie ever made. There's a fairly simple reason why. The movie required not just a vast array of very different locations and sets, in addition to what I spoke of earlier, futuristic battleships and these epic fight scenes, all kinds of Martians, but it was important to make all of this look real. It required the latest CGI technology and live action. In fact, John Carter ended up having more CGI than the average Pixar film has, and Pixar is only CGI, what many of us think of as animation. Now I thought, well, Avatar, the widely successful James Cameron film, did the same thing. It was known to have a ton of live action and CGI. But there's an important difference. In John Carter, the Tharks, which are these green six-armed creatures, are integral characters. They're on the screen a lot with John Carter, led again by Taylor Kitsch. And they're oftentimes in the same shot. In fact, the Tharks have more screen time than that of the CGI character Navi in Avatar. Also, the Tharks and humans are in the same shots throughout the film, opposed to Avatar where this didn't occur nearly as much. Some have argued to me, quite persuasively, that Stanton could have reined in the spending and didn't need such a massive budget. But that's easy to say now. Remember, if anyone can make such an ambitious film, and with this $250 million price tag, it is Andrew Stanton. Dick Cook knows that if anyone can make just about anything a hit, it is Stanton. In fact, how could he not pull off John Carter? A story with far more of a built-in story than any of the animated films Stanton had previously made? Movies that had made so much moolah, like the one about a trash compactor? If I were Dick Cook, I would have trusted Andrew Stanton if he told me he wanted to make a movie about, I don't know, think of a terrible idea. Stanton would make it awesome. And I also reminded myself, Disney has the money. They don't look at $250 million like most. It's not peanuts per se, but it's not those really stupid, expensive peanuts at those pretentious grocery stores in New York City. Never fall for those. As the script writing process begins and pre-production is underway, everything is going really well. Stan decides he won't just have CGI fake things as the other main characters, but instead use real actors. So Stan doesn't just get anybody to play what are normally just fill-in roles for these Tharks. He finds actors like three-time Academy Award nominee Willem Dafoe. Dafoe plays a Thark, a character that is covered, if you will, in CGI, and thus you hardly even notice it's him. For the main character, Stan wanted the film to have a rising star, but somebody that was not necessarily a household name. Insert Taylor Kitsch. Kitsch was already known for his beloved role in the critically acclaimed TV show Friday Night Lights. 
And I mean that like, it's just like how well he understood story, how well he understood a character's arc and how well he understood um, the nuance of a scene. And, and so we could, we could really get into it and talk stuff to top all of that off because he's an athlete. Um, he's just has just a super extreme work ethic. Like he gets the hours of practice needed to win the game. And that also sets an example. Like if he's working that hard, then why, why we should all be working that hard. So this isn't Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Production is not going up in flames and there are not red flags that this film is going to be a mess. Quite the opposite. And everyone is pumped. On a much smaller scale with documentaries, I've had this experience where if you're with the right people, you do become a family. You're on the road for weeks or months or years on end, traveling the country, oftentimes the world. You're eating meals together, staying up late in the night or getting up early to go film. It's intimate. I'm responsible for so many people hooking up or getting married, for real. Since Stan hadn't talked at length about John Carter in such a long time, he took the time before we sat down to do something he hadn't done, well, perhaps ever. I watched some of the behind the scenes just to sort of bring my memory back for you. And oh, that's nice of you. And I, was <laughs> I appreciate sort of, that. And I was like, wow, that's what I remember the most when I watched it was just like, wow, I miss that specific group. I, in the, I'm getting back to the same point of that we had always planned three pictures. We all, all I see when I watch some of that behind the scenes footage of us just being sort of caught in the day of the life is that we all think we're going to see each other for right. uh, six more years. And Stan isn't kidding. He loved his crew. So Colin was yeah. was crucial. Like, Maya Zuber was the costume designer. Tommy McGormley was first. Just, he doesn't get enough. Betsy credit. really understood the live action shoot. Mark Andrews is a bigger and nearly equal. He worked on so many things that I was a fan. Bill of. Corso was the makeup. Dan Adele is an amazing cinematographer. He was often just protecting my back, which is really such a gift. But unfortunately, we really didn't prepare ourselves to not see each other again. I just will always feel sad that it, you that you only got chapter one of three. As I got ready to unravel more about what happened to John Carter, I learned there was someone who had already been on the case. And it wasn't just a casual fan. It was the CIA. <laughs> no, seriously. It was an undercover CIA agent. I was on my way to meet Andrew Stanton at Pixar. I had done as much research as I thought possible. In the hours leading up to meeting him, I thought maybe I'd, I don't know, shower or something. I figured I'd quickly do what I had done when first thinking about doing an episode on John Carter. A simple Google search. Was there anything right in front of my nose that I had been missing? For whatever reason, I ended up going to Amazon to see about any books that talked about John Carter in the context of historical box office flops. I discovered there had been a book about John Carter, the movie, the novels, and the history. Meet Michael Sellers, author of John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. Sellers is a lifelong John Carter fan. I suspected at first that he may be some hardcore fan who perhaps sits in his parents' basement. Nothing wrong with that writing about his obsession, John Carter. Or maybe he's a younger guy bullied at school, also in his parents' basement. And maybe John Carter is his refuge. But boy, oh boy, Sellers has certainly not been sitting around in anybody's basement. 
Michael Sellers is one of the more interesting people you'll ever meet. And his story is almost hard to believe, worthy of its own movie. Sellers was in the CIA for about a decade as an international undercover agent. I kid you not. He served in Indonesia, Ethiopia, the Philippines, and Russia, where he was kidnapped while undercover. You can see a video of him on YouTube being interrogated by the KGB. And then I, you know, I, I uh, was undercover um, in Ethiopia at a time when it was a communist country. Mm. Then in Moscow, during what turned out to be the most uh, tumultuous two-year period in the Cold War, 84 to 86. And then the Philippines, when they were having a series of coup attempts. So you were undercover in Russia as well? Yes, I was undercover. I was, I was assigned to the embassy as a political officer, but I was undercover. They knew who I was. And that made the whole assignment in Moscow quite interesting because there was 24-7 surveillance, you know, on me. And in order to do things on the streets, then I had to, can, we, we as a team had to devise ways for me to disappear for three or four hours at a time um, without surveillance knowing it. And then reinsert myself back in so that the whole thing would happen without them becoming aware that anything had happened. And then, of course, we had two moles inside the CIA, right? We started working in that same year, but things started going wrong during my second year in Moscow. And my time in Moscow ended up with me getting arrested um, while meeting with a KGB officer. And, and then I was expelled. Maybe I went on a bit of a tangent there, but come on, you can't make this stuff up. And ultimately, what inspired Sellers to join the CIA? It's interesting that the the idea that Edgar Rice Burroughs influenced people to do great things. You grow up reading these books and you read about, you know, these heroes are so compelling and so you want to be like them. After retiring from the CIA, Sellers went on to work on indie films in Los Angeles. And he was excited, to say the least, when he heard that John Carter was finally being made into a film. A hundred days before the movie was to be released, Andrew Stanton went on Good Morning America to premiere the trailer. Fans, like Sellers, couldn't wait. And he remembers the morning quite well. That morning when they played the trailer, I was kind of appalled. And I thought, oh my God, this trailer is not, not, not really working very well, I don't think. But maybe the reaction will be different. And so then I went online and I started, you know, going to all the kind of what I would call the, the influencer sites, all the sites that sort of track, you know, the release of a trailer and talk about it and the people who do reviews and all that. Sellers wasn't alone. Nobody liked the trailer. And Stanton ended up going on Jimmy Kimmel to show a new trailer that felt more exciting. But Sellers and other John Carter fans still felt like the movie was just not looking good. It was a dud. It would land. It's kind of a you know it wasn't being received well. And then over the next few weeks, there was a lot of indications that it was just not you know not getting off to a good start. So CIA Sellers, a man of action, not to mention incredibly smart, wanted to help. I made a website called John Carter Files, the John Carter Files, mm -hmm. that I really intended to be kind of just a way of trying to help it along. I was going to my my original idea was to just aggregate all the articles that were coming out each day. And then try to let some of the journalists know that it was there. So it'd be kind of a resource for journalists. I also put, you know, I had, <clears throat> I had a lot of the, the what, you know, what Barson was all about and that kind of thing. So I did that. And then that was, you know, one thing led to another. And then as Christmas came and it looked like it was not getting uh, any better at all in the promotion. Sellers took an incredible next step. 
he reached out to the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate. He asked if he could do something kind of unheard of. I was away with some friends at a house upstate. There was like a dozen of us. One night, everyone heard some sort of really nasty-sounding music coming from upstairs. Then they realized it wasn't music. They realized it was an animal of some sort, likely a raccoon. It was this, like, gangly sound, harsh on the ears. They slowly made their way upstairs. Keith and Yager had broomsticks. JJ and Zinn had their fists out, which wouldn't do much. They went into the room where the noise was coming from, and it was me. Passed out, snoring, loudly. They looked in shock. They couldn't believe this. It was a rare combination of snoring, talking out loud, and unusual movements. So they cracked open some beers, put together a cheese plate, and were entertained for about an hour. Why do I snore like this? Can I get like a sleep report or something? Well, I can. I introduce you to 23andMe. 23andMe is a DNA testing service that can offer insights into your ancestry, health, wellness, and traits. It's unbelievable. This includes sleep reports. The deep sleep report tells you if you are more likely to be an especially deep sleeper. The sleep movement report tells you how much you're likely to move during your sleep based on your DNA. There's also the bitter taste report and sweet versus salty reports. DNA can help play a role in determining your food preferences from sweet to salty to bitter. So this is the important part. Order your 23andMe health and ancestry service kit at 23andme.com slash WRH. That's the number 23andme.com slash WRH. To take a step back, the trailer that premiered on Good Morning America seems to be one of several red flags leading up to the release of John Carter. This is where I get to the anatomy of a box office flop. I've narrowed this down to eight different moving parts that are intertwined and did not help the movie. You almost have to picture this like a game of Jenga. Each of these eight moving parts are their own block. As each block is removed, you come closer to the whole thing crashing down. Jenga block number one. Rumors are dangerous. And rumor got out that Andrew Stanton was reshooting a lot of the movie. That what I said earlier, that production had gone well, well, wasn't true. That Stan was having to call the crew and cast back to reshoot parts of the film. In my talks with different folks about the movie, this inevitably came up. He went back for at least two reshoots. And there's been reshoots, and there's the budget, and reshoots, and all these different things. Maybe I'm being a bit gullible in this episode. Maybe I'm a filmmaker and I'm taking the side of the director. Let's call that out. And this part is definitely an opinion, but in my research and from what Stanton says, I don't buy that these reshoots were such a problem. It was um, always mapped out. The money was always put aside for it. It wasn't right, an overage. Right. And sadly, it just shows what people don't know. And because, like, if they understood how we really make movies at Pixar, we have four to six reshoots built in on every one of our films. Matt Singer, editor-in-chief and film critic at ScreenCrush.com and contributor to CBS's This Morning and Ebert Presents at the Movies, said this. When um, a director... Uh, takes a hundred takes uh, um, of something 
and the movie is a masterpiece, they're called, you know, a perfectionist. When a movie, when a director takes a hundred takes of something and the movie comes out and people don't like it, they're called, you know, difficult or, uh, you know, uh, nuts. This misinterpretation of the reshoots played into the narrative that this was the big risk on Disney's part. Could Andrew Stanton really direct a film that was not CGI, not animation? Could he really make the switch to directing live action? Maybe the Oscar-winning animated filmmaker is simply that, an animated filmmaker. Here's a comparison to this line of thinking. Let's say you're an incredible football coach. Take Nick Saban, for instance. There's an awesome podcast called Origins on him, by the way. Nick Saban is arguably the best football coach in college football. But when he tried coaching professional football in the NFL for the Miami Dolphins, it was a disaster. The team was no good, and he ended up going back to coaching college football where he's continued to win national championships. One isn't better than the other. If anything, they require equal skill, just a different set of skills. And so before John Carter is released, people are saying, watch out. Andrew Stanton is a college football coach. These rumors don't go away as the movie gets closer to the premiere date. They only get louder for a few reasons. Jenga piece number two. Not too long after Dick Cook chairman of Walt Disney Pictures, signs off on John Carter, he is let go. The Disney brand isn't performing as strongly as it should be. This doesn't help John Carter. I assume this is oftentimes true in most businesses. If an executive hires you for a job, in this case, writing, directing, and producing a film, and that executive that hired you is fired sometimes after for reasons totally unrelated to you, then you've lost the person that had a belief in you getting the job done. Is it possible the new person that comes in wants your movie to be a hit? Of course. But you'd almost always rather have that first person that approved to be in good standing at the company and be there with you all the way through. A hugely respected executive, Rich Ross, replaced Dick Cook. There was one thing about Rich, however, that was different. I tracked down Brooks Barnes. He spent seven years at the Wall Street Journal covering the intersection of Hollywood and business. He's now a reporter at the New York Times covering entertainment and breaking stories like the 2014 cyber attack on Sony Pictures. I could have talked to him forever. He grew up traveling the country as his family was in a carnival, and he got a master's degree in cultural reporting and criticism at NYU. Smart dude. Said Brooks, Boss, Rich Ross, who was a star executive at Disney Channel uh, and Nickelodeon at some point before that, um, television was always his um, area. And he also brought in other uh, people who were not movie insiders. And that usually ends in disaster uh, because the body language and culture Mm -hmm. in movies can be completely different than on television. Mm -hmm. Television tends to be because you have to have something on every day. It tends to move faster and be more forthright in its, in its uh, decision-making and conversations. Movies can be a little more, you know, everything is fabulous in the meeting. And then you find out the real story two days later through the back channels. So Rich was new to the movie industry. And while Brooks was talking, I started thinking back on my interview with Stan. At one point, he said he didn't have any sort of answer about what really happened. I'm just trying to make sure that this thing 
has the best shot. But he did surprise me when he said, I don't have uh, this conspiracy theory about it. I, maybe there is. I don't know, but I really don't. I don't, I haven't, I, I've not spent, it just doesn't seem healthy. It just doesn't seem, I'll never know if there was anything of that sort, but I. What do you mean conspiracy theory? Well, just people thinking that there, there people had it out in the, from either other studios or within the studio or, or whether there was, uh, just good old-fashioned war games, Schadenfreude that happens every weekend between studios and movies. You know, it could be all of the above. I left the interview unsure of what he meant. He wouldn't really elaborate. He didn't say there was a conspiracy, although he then did say, "Well, maybe there is." And so I was wondering, what could that conspiracy be? And why did Stan very quickly, almost between sentences, say? People had it out for the movie within the studio. I don't know. But listen here to what Brooks says about Rich. Rich was, you know, very, um, very direct. And, and people saw that as a threat on the movie side. Producers, directors, writers. Who is this guy to tell us what to do? Mm-hmm. We know everything. And we're going to smile to your face and, um, you know, put the knife in your back. And so what happened? In this case, that really started to happen uh, at Disney after John Carter arrived. Before it, it provided an opening, basically, for all of the enemies uh, Rich had created in making some big changes at the studio to suddenly uh, start going after him. Now, this made sense. The enemies Rich made did seem to go out of their way to make his life miserable. And they did this by making John Carter go as poorly as possible. It had nothing to do with Stanton, nothing to do with John Carter, but it seems had everything to do with Rich. Brooks notes in one article how agents, publicists, rival executives are all calling him, anonymously of course, about John Carter, while also tearing in to Rich Ross. And maybe this helps explain what Stanton said. It did seem a little extreme that this was getting such attention for not doing well. But, it, you know, it's, I can't be objective at the time. M.T. Carney was one of the new people hired under Rich Ross. She'd be in charge of marketing. This is obviously vital in the film business. Carney came from a New York marketing agency specializing in packaged goods. I've always thought, this is a bit of a side note, it's one of those jobs that when it goes right, people tend to say, well, yeah, they did their job. Look at all they had to work with. How could you screw it up? And when it doesn't go right, people say, geez, look at all they had to work with. They really screwed up. Now, Andrew Stanton hadn't just made critically acclaimed films. He also had made commercial hits of historic proportions. So he had a big say in marketing said Brooks of M.T. Carney. I don't think her inexperience mattered except in one way, and it was a big one, which is an inability to push back against a star director. The star director in this case is obviously Andrew Stanton. If you have a marketing chief who has a track record, um, you know, has opened these 10 movies that were, were potentially trouble, and you know the the call which is often instinctual you know our, the trailer needs to be this versus that the poster the slogan should be this like that's all at a certain point um based on experience and taste and in a, a read of the market 
So if you have that, and you have, and then in the, a meeting, a filmmaker like like Andrew Stanton is saying, "No, I don't like that song. No, I want the billboard to be this way." The marketing chief has to have the credibility and authority to stand back, stand up against them, that person, and say, "No, we're doing it this way," um, and and here's why. And she didn't have that. It resulted in a lot of back and forth on the marketing plan. You know, I. I have a lot of sympathy when it comes to the marketing and look at, I don't, don't necessarily disagree that it got, that it missed the mark, but man, did I, all I saw was this group just trying so hard to figure it out and sharing that struggle with me, trying to get my input, um, throughout it. I think that there were times that I even was necessarily not contributive in a good way. I think I was sometimes at my wit's end or working hard on the film and then being a little pissy back. It's important to remember that nobody, or or at least I'm not questioning these people's talent. It's that they were in a new playing field and it feels like their test run happened to be John Carter. I reached out to MT Carney and she responded quickly and let me know she's under an NDA and unable to talk about the film. This brings us to Jenga block number four. Whomever you want to point the finger at, John Carter's marketing was a disaster. Seth Godin, inducted into the American Marketing Association's Marketing Hall of Fame in 2018, which I guess is a thing, once said, marketing is no longer about the stuff you make, but about the stories you tell. And this became an issue with the marketing of John Carter. What was the story they were going to tell audiences? What should audiences expect from this film? And believe it or not, the mistake began with a change in the title. This is very Monday Morning Quarterback, and like Seth Godin said, has nothing to do with the stuff you make. In this case, the actual film. But it's about the title only being the main character's name. Now think about other films with just the main character's name. Michael Clayton stars George Clooney. Aaron Brockovich stars Julia Roberts. There's probably exceptions to this rule, but such critically acclaimed and box office hits with just the name of the main character as the title are usually led by A-list stars, household names, playing ambitious characters. You can love Taylor Kitsch as much as I do, but it's just different. Not to mention, the book itself is called John Carter of Mars. Why not embrace that? Don't forget, Indiana Jones' official title is Raiders of the Lost Ark, not simply Indiana Jones. Or Harry Potter wasn't simply called Harry Potter, it was called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. By the end of it, people are so familiar that they revert to just calling the films by those persons' names. Disney's marketing team seemed to have believed the word Mars in the title would have been a turnoff, said Brooks Barnes. In some ways, John Carter of Mars at least would have anchored the film in that in that fan science fiction context. But they were terrified of having the word Mars in the title because they had just re- had another bomb a few months earlier called Mars Needs Moms, which also had a write down. And so they did this like survey or study and, and decided that any time that the word Mars appeared in a title of a film, it was a bad idea. So that's that's part of the theory. Andrew Stanton said this. I uh, agreed to it because I they had data to show how much, you know, these test markets were saying that they wouldn't want to see something with Mars on it. This brings us to piece number five. 
Brooks Barnes told me something I hadn't seen in prior research. While Disney is obviously a world-renowned brand, there was something about John Carter being under Disney's banner that made it a tougher sell. At the time, Disney had three different companies that could release the film. Disney itself, Pixar, and Marvel. Under those brands, the only one available to a John Carter would have been Disney. Uh, Marvel um, movies always come from the comic books in, right. in that that way. Um, and Pixar, um, in, in its own assembly line, John Carter being based on, on novel, I think from 1912, and then, then more after that, um, would have fallen to the, to the Disney brand. And at the time, it was a little bit of a force you know, round peg into a square hole because the problem with the Disney brand, the the strength and the weakness is that it means something so powerful to for family that it can also turn away um, a cooler audience, a, a younger, um, you know, the Marvel audience, mm. especially at that time. So in this case, you've got John Carter going out with the Disney label Fanboys look at that and think, uh, it's going to be a watered-down family. My grandma wants to go see it. Families are looking at that and thinking, well, do I? Uh, it looks a little scary, maybe. I don't understand what these thwark creatures are. They look kind of ugly. <laughs> and tharks. And um, so it can actually be a miss as, as a result of that. And this next part is important. Disney specifically wanted this film to bring in more of a male audience. So much so that, and I can't fully confirm this, but that marketing decided to take the film's female lead character, played by Lynn Collins, off of the movie poster, leaving John Carter in the front and the other characters in the backdrop. Disney thought it could otherwise be misconstrued as a love story. What complicates this is that one of the reasons they had dropped Mars from the title in the first place was that they thought it could alienate a female audience. So it sounds like there just wasn't clear direction, said Matt Singer. It's been five, six yeah. years now since I saw the movie, yeah. and I wasn't a huge fan of it. But, I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that I do remember thinking was one of its best elements was Lynn Collins as, as the female lead. She's really the, the bright spot of the movie. I would think that that would be a character that would resonate with female audiences. So there are a few items that the film is running up against. The Jenga set isn't too far off from crashing. This brings us to piece number six. For a movie that was meant to be so big, many have wondered why marketing didn't make the film feel bigger. Yes, there was an upcoming Super Bowl trailer, and there had been ads online and on TV, and Stan and the actors from the film did the routine press events, but for the most expensive movie in the history of cinema, it seemed kind of underwhelming. And when the film did get press, it was driving people away from wanting to see it. Tracking numbers, which shows how audiences feel about a movie as it gets closer to premiere date, was spiraling downwards. That fact alone is proof that marketing wasn't just a wash, it was actually hurting the film. Matt Singer concluded, I don't know that they ever really fully knew what they were making, and mm. uh, maybe they weren't ever making a, you know, a blockbuster mainstream movie. Maybe they were making a weird kind of culty science fiction film, and they just 
overspent on it by by a couple hundred million dollars. Right. At this point, John Carter needs to start having a few things go its way. Meanwhile, CIA agent Michael Sellers is trying to work his own magic. If the man can help lead a violent coup in the Philippines, maybe he has a shot at helping John Carter. Sellers gets in touch with the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate, now run by his family and other dedicated Hollywood executives. Sellers asks them, with their approval, if he can reach out to Disney. Sellers was in the CIA. He can find a way to reach out to anybody and share with Disney his concerns. Burroughs' estate thought it was a good idea. And sure enough, Sellers got the meeting. So I did get, you know, and I did get a meeting with the head of marketing for the, for the, uh, the project. And I was able to present, you know, present the idea. It didn't, <laughs> I don't think it made a dent in their, in their planning, but, you know, they did hear me out. So I went in there, I had like a PowerPoint. It seemed that Disney was missing the whole boat, that this was the origin story that had given rise to the great franchises, you know, whether it was Flash Gordon, even Superman, and then, of course, more recently, it was uh, uh, Star Wars and Avatar, all of which, you know, could trace their lineage back to this. And this was the source material for all that. And they were ignoring that. Disney's response? Well, we're gonna, we're, we've bought a Super Bowl ad, and that Super Bowl ad's going to be great. And once that happens, this is really going to take off, and you'll see everything's going to be great, and basically. I mean, I'm simplifying it, but uh-huh. that was the, the, the basic idea. On February 5th, 2012, it was time for the big Super Bowl ad. And it turned out to be a special night. I actually remember this game quite well. It was crazy. The Giants somehow, with a last-second catch, beat the Patriots. More importantly than what I remember is the 111 million people that watched the game, meaning that over half of America watched at least some of the broadcast. At the time, it was the most watched TV program in the history of the United States. Hopefully, hopefully after the GMA trailer debacle, after the title name change, after the endless rumors, the management changes, maybe it turns out that Disney knew exactly what it was doing. Maybe it turns out that after all of this, they didn't need that big tentpole approach. Maybe, well, just maybe it was that final Jenga piece. And everything came crashing down. Out of the 75 advertisements played that night, John Carter was ranked 71st. Of the film trailers played that night, there were seven, I think. John Carter was dead last. And the reason it was so bad is hard to believe. Disney had a one-minute time slot for the trailer. The idea was that the trailer would also be this promotion. So while watching the trailer, audiences were looking for a hidden clue. This hidden clue was somewhere in the first 24 seconds of the trailer, which was this one long shot of different frames from different shots of the movie. If you don't follow, that's okay. You can look it up on YouTube. The point that matters here is it's 24 seconds of different seemingly random shots. But when a company buys a commercial during the Super Bowl, there's an approximately 25% chance that your commercial, or in this case trailer, comes on during something like an injury timeout. In other words, a break in the game that isn't a full break. And so your commercial is only 30 seconds. It's a risk you have to take. Because of this, every company, best I can understand, maybe we'll talk about it more in a reaction episode, must submit both a one-minute commercial and a 30-second commercial in the one in four chance they get, well, kind of screwed. And wouldn't you know it, this is crazy. Of course, 
John Carter comes on during an injury timeout. And the problem is that Disney's 30-second version still had those first 24 seconds of the different random shots from the film with this hidden clue game going on. They didn't make that part only six seconds or at least something shorter than 24 seconds. The only difference from the one minute trailer is with six seconds remaining, they slap in a couple of full screenshots from the film, the full title is revealed and premiere date soon after. And then that's it, 30 seconds. Stanton quickly tweets out the full trailer that goes to YouTube, but it's too late. Well, unless Michael Sellers can do something. Sitting on the couch at home, he's shaking his head, demoralized. What the hell was that? But as he learned from none other than John Carter, it wasn't going to deter him. So that night, in a fit of, I think, sort of, uh, yeah, in a fit of frustration, I said, I can cut my own trailer let's just do it and i sat down and did it and that's how that trailer got cut uh, when i cut the trailer i didn't release it publicly other than to put it on the john carter files for about a day and get a hundred reactions to it so i put it up next to the disney trailer and didn't say where it came from and asked people to vote and i got 86 percent voted for the new trailer and 14 percent for the disney trailer so then i sent it to disney and said this is the reaction of this focus group and then nothing happened and uh, Disney didn't react. Ryan didn't. Nobody wrote me back to me. And so after about a week, I went ahead and published it on YouTube. And then that was the point at which I was at that point. I was in touch with some of the people that had been on the production crew of John Carter. And one of them forwarded it to Andrew Stanton. And then Andrew Stanton liked it. And he tweeted about it. And then it got that trailer got a lot of attention. And Sellers here is shortchanging himself. Wired, Entertainment Weekly, The Hollywood Reporter, The LA Times, CNN, and many, many more sites. Over 200 websites all run glowing reviews about his trailer. Ain't It Cool News, a popular film website, embeds the trailer with the headline, A fan-made trailer sells John Carter better than any other trailer so far. They talked about it, Rice Burroughs, and it kind of, you know, positions it as this, uh, on the 100th anniversary of A Princess of Mars, Disney presents John Carter. Part of the reason Sellers' trailer hooked me was that he told me a narrative. He told me a story about the film. Remember that quote, marketing is no longer about the stuff that you make, but about the stories you tell. The story of Sellers' trailer told me this was a movie that was the granddaddy of the great franchises, the great superheroes of all time. On the 100th anniversary of the book, that inspired Avatar, Superman, and Star Wars. From two-time Academy Award-winning director, we present John Carter. Damn. Unfortunately. So it was kind of cool and got a lot of attention, but it was very late in the game. It was about, you know, 10 days before the release, I think, or maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So it, had, it, it became an item of discussion. When it came to the marketing, Stan also admits something he may have overlooked. These books were my Harry Potter. They weren't popular to the rest of the world. I was, an, I was, I was definitely, to this day, I think anybody that reads those books is a minority. <laughs> and um, if I have any takeaway lesson that I learned is that I made the mistake, and I think a lot of us made the mistake, of thinking the audience out there for this was larger. When it came time to premiere the film, the rumors were out about these reshoots. 
the reviews weren't looking great, and there was a lot of talk about how much the film cost. Brooks Barnes, who went to the movie premiere in Los Angeles, said, It's interesting. I actually have never seen a premiere like that because it was all of this pomp and circumstance, the normal, that's normal. But every Disney executive on the red carpet had this look on their face of sheer terror (laughs) That, that even today I remember. In its opening weekend, the film came in second at the box office, making only $30 million and behind the animated film The Lorax, which actually had already come out the week before. Obviously, the news became just how disappointing a $30 million opening is. What is talked about far less is that the movie did grow $70 million outside of North America, amounting to $100 million in John Carter's opening weekend. Still, the reviews aren't great. Criticism of the tone, the acting, I won't go through it all. There are also reviews which are just cruel. Stanton was quite honest, which I really appreciate when talking about this. I could tell that there was a noticeable change in tone when I brought the reviews up. How dark of a place do you go? Uh, I think I went I think I went darker than I allowed myself to realize at the time. I think I, you know, you just tried to breathe, you know. Um but you for better or for worse um, I knew I shouldn't let it take me down. I didn't, I hated the idea that I hated the idea that what the rest of the world thought mattered that much to me. But uh, it did. It did. Yeah. And I, and, but you just hate that it does. It's, right. you know, you're back in high school. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, you know what it really did is, and I'm, this is the honest truth. I, I, I said, if I can't handle reading bad reviews, then I shouldn't be reading good reviews. And I've never read anything ever since. Oh, come on. No, I mean it. People I, say that. It's no, I, no, no, I mean it. Because I realized part of my pain or my sadness was it hurt what other people thought and what other people were saying. And I'm like, well, then I don't have to. I don't, it's a choice to be in the virtual public square. Right. And so I said, well, until I think I'm up for that, then I don't, then why do that? You know? When I was in high school, I started a high school film festival. If there was an all American basketball game for my basketball friends, why not a film festival for us, you know, geeks? Now, over 10 years later, the All-American High School Film Festival is the biggest high school film festival in the world, with student films from over 30 countries all playing their short films in only a week, actually, at the AMC Theaters in Times Square, a nonprofit that requires hard work. There has been a lot of bad ideas I've had along the way. In the first year, I got a pizza sponsor to give the students free food. Great. But it was early in the festival. We weren't national, much less international yet. And once the kids started eating the pizza, they decided they didn't want to see the films anymore. Bad idea. In the past, I've scheduled films at the festival at 8 a.m. Not smart. I thought it'd be cool to serve raw fish instead of popcorn. Not smart. I thought we didn't need a warning before a film that made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre look like a Disney film. Not smart. But as we pass the decade mark, and by hiring the right people, those bad ideas are no longer. You know what a smart idea is? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH, as in what really happened, to hire the right person. 
ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH, ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When I look back at the actual reviews, not just the headlines, it's about a split. Half are bad, another half are decent. It's really those rumors and articles in the months leading up to the film that are really bad. Those rumors. The film has a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Not great, but not like many films that are far worse. Maybe, maybe the film didn't do well because, well, it had kind of already been made. This is Jenga number six, said Matt Singer. You know, it is this movie that, or this novel, series of novels that really inspired a lot of other uh, fiction, whether it's Superman or Star Wars or whatever it is. And certainly the books came first, but the movie itself came, you know, decades and decades later after all these other uh, derivative things had already come out. And it just felt, I think to a lot of people, it just felt a little too familiar, even though it's the thing that without which we might not have some of these other classic beloved uh, movies. And it, it just feels a little derivative, even though it's not, even though it is the originator of so many of these tropes. And so I, I honestly don't know how anyone, and perhaps that is one reason why there's this sort of tortured backstory of the movie of why it took so many years and so many different filmmakers tried to make it. I I really wonder if this is one of the reasons is that you're up against decades of history, decades of, of movies and television shows and comic books that have pilfered this thing and kind of mined it for every last brilliant idea that Edgar Rice Burroughs had. And so what you're left with is something that is brilliant but also feels like you've seen it before the producers announced 10 days after opening weekend that the film will lose money it's the nail in the coffin but to announce this 10 days after was unusual this leads to jenga block number seven and what would be considered the biggest conspiracy theory surrounding the film that disney had their eye on buying the star wars franchise which had only recently been put on the market. And as you may recall, what movie was Star Wars similar to? That Star Wars was inspired by? John Carter. Maybe, for Disney, there wasn't room for both. Michael Sellers said, The idea that they would announce that publicly 10 days after was unheard of. And I don't think we've ever heard it since. Um, The idea that they would know 10 days into it yeah, that's that's fairly true. I mean, you can, you know, box office, once you get past the second weekend of a theatrical release, you can project 
within maybe 5% of what the total income over from all sources will be over the 10 year life of the film, you know, because it, the patterns are set. Um, so I think that they, they had, they had enough information at that point to know, but why did they make that announcement? I mean, there's a lot of speculation. I could never get anybody to really, you know, give what I think to be the true answer. And I think the true answer was, I think Iger was anxious to make that announcement because he was at that point deep into his courtship of, of uh, George Lucas. And then later, you know, it's revealed that, that he was, you know, he was pursuing Star Wars at that point. And I mean, if I'm George Lucas, you know, do I want to sell all of that to Disney if they're in fact pursuing a, a parallel franchise that, you know, was kind of the source material for my, I mean, you, you can sort of see why there wasn't room for both of those. Right. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I, 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 I uh, you know, I don't, I can't absolutely guarantee that Rich Ross made that announcement because of that and that they felt like it was, it was, it was important to kind of make, you know, get that announcement, get out there and kind of get John Carter off the table and make sure that it was well understood that John Carter was not going to be a franchise. Some have speculated that Disney was hoping John Carter would do poorly so that it'd guarantee them the Star Wars franchise. Now that's a theory, speculation. And Stan made a point of naming two people who went out of their way to say, listen, you're going to be okay. The, the nicest thing that I remember really well was uh, how supportive Bob Iger was and, uh, and Alan Bergman were. They, they're the Disney execs and they... And he sent me this, Iger sent me this great quote of Teddy Rosenbaum that I'm going to totally mess up because I don't have it on the tip of my tongue. Oh, about yeah. fighting in the ring uh, and nobody really understands what it takes unless they've fought in the ring themselves. Right. And he, and it was the best thing I could have ever been sent. Like he just got, he's like, like you're in this small club of people that knows how hard it is to make a movie, yeah. let alone this movie. The line from Teddy Roosevelt that Bob Iger sent is as Andrew prefaced a bit more eloquent, which we'll get to, but regardless, there will be no sequels, no theme parks. It's over on Twitter. Stan reveals the titles to the next two films that would have been Gods of Mars and Warlords of Mars. This leads to Jenga block number eight. Andrew Stan's belief, not to mention what he was told, that there would be two sequels. He had been writing that first film, assuming there were two more to come. So during the process of writing it, you essentially, by not including certain things, are even by not including certain things, are writing the next two movies. Yeah, we 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 knew to be malleable because we just had to solve. If, like we all knew, like the first one just has to work, and yeah. you want it. You want anything you do. I, I had enough experience. You know, people forget that the third movie I ever worked on was a sequel, uh, which was Toy Story Two. So it's like we all got like these things have to hold as if you've not you've never seen the first one or never going like they have to just stand alone. You can critique it. Negative or positive, but this thing was planned from day one, concept to writing the script to on as a trilogy. So I never looked at the movie uh, as a hundred percent freestanding standalone movie. I, I I treated it like you would episodes of TV. Think of Game of Thrones or something. Okay. I, 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 I thought of it as can I make part one of the three part film um, stand up to have a strong enough beginning and, and middle and end that I feel satisfied like I do a great chapter of a book. Yeah. But 
leave just enough started or you know uh, or teased to go where is the in the greater scheme of this is it going Stan was calling a lot of people on the crew the people he thought he'd be spending many more years with Well I tried to make sure that I think my biggest concern when it didn't go well was kind of apologizing to everybody apologizing to the cast and the crew like I just like I really felt bad that uh that they had to experience such a loss and you know and um I hated that they had to have something that they might have to be embarrassed about on their resume um cuz I just none of us saw that coming on us uh and none of us still feel that way when we on our personal memories of it but it's really hard when the megaphone's that loud for that long and you start getting lumped in and, you, and then you start to see that it's just never going to leave the history books without that sort of scarlet letter on it and i just felt awful that that you know these people you know whenever you're making a film you know you're you're basically asking 100 to 200 people to trust you that there's land on and and just keep rowing and you don't want to let them down so i that's all i really remember most conversations being about was me just making sure they understood that they did nothing to contribute to the negative response and that they did exactly what if not greater than what I had ever hoped and asked of them and that I wouldn't have changed a thing. And I didn't have to lie. It made it very easy to talk like that. I just felt in a parental way, very responsible and very bad that they had to suffer anything for all their hard work. Yeah. So does it, I mean, it must make you, I mean, it must've been quite sad. Yeah. Yeah. It still is. The ninth and final Jenga block Like so many of our other podcast episodes, follow the money. As Stan himself said, I think had we been more uh, in understanding of who our audience was um, size-wise, either it would have never been made or it would have been made uh, cheaper, you know. The film did make $284 million at the box office and in DVD sales. If it weren't for the cost of over $350 million, it could have made its money back, said Jermaine Lucier, entertainment reporter at Gizmodo, one of the most popular websites in the world of science fiction. It needed to make $700 million to break even, to kind of be successful. And this is something, you know, this movie sort of is a setup for more movies. They wanted it to be a franchise. And so when you start getting this buzz out there, like, oh, they reshot the movie, it costs so much, it, it creates these expectations and these and this negative connotation around it, that unless it is something incredible, it, uh, you know, it's just going to sort of fizzle. And, I mean, that same sort of thing happened on Titanic, and obviously James Cameron sort of pulled through on that. But, you know, this had to be like a Titanic-sized hit to be a success. Ultimately, Michael Seller said it was the same problem that Edward R. Burroughs faced nearly 100 years ago when he couldn't get the movie made. Yeah, we were funny. We were talking about my CIA background. One of the things that I tried to do in writing this book, you know, was to do a real investigation. And so I, I don't think there was any one. I think there was a, there were a series of things and it was kind of a perfect storm. And I really can't say this enough. As all of my guests have pointed out, playing Monday morning quarterback is so easy, said Matt Singer. Well, I mean, expectations are a funny thing, right? You, you can, if you, you tell people that a movie is a, is a disaster, if there's been reshoots, if there's been problems uh, behind the scenes, if they don't know how to market it, if they're changing the title. 
And then when they see the movie and it's, you know, it's not bad. Maybe it's not five stars. Maybe it's not the greatest film they ever saw, but it's, you know, it's an, it's Andrew Stanton is too good of a filmmaker for it to be an outright disaster. And so perhaps their expectations were, had been so lowered by all that steady stream of negativity that um, when they saw the finished product, they thought it wasn't that bad. What happened to John Carter? If the film was a masterpiece, it's likely people would have found a way to see it. It's likely there would have been sequels. Maybe we'd be in California right now, screaming our butts off, thinking, man, this John Carter theme park is unbelievable. But it isn't a masterpiece. It's fun with legitimately impressive action-packed scenes and some amazing characters. Is there anything else Stanton could have done to save the film? Maybe. Maybe try and make the movie for less money. But remember what we discussed in the very beginning. For 60 years, everyone had the same problem Stanton had. It was impossible to make the film without a massive budget. Stanton had the confidence that his film would make money, even if the rumors of a $700 million return are true. I think what really did the film in, what created a box office flop, was a perfect storm of events that largely were out of Andrew Stanton's control. These Jenga blocks. Rumors of reshoots. A new group of people running Disney, some who had made enemies and some who didn't have experience in the film business. A marketing campaign that never took off, including a disastrous Super Bowl trailer. Disney's incredible reputation actually making it difficult for audiences to know what John Carter would be about. A script written with the expectation there'd be two more films. The fact John Carter inspired so many other movies that by the time John Carter hit the screen, it felt a bit stale. And in the end, Disney had their eyes on Star Wars. I definitely don't think, as others do, that this changed how they approached John Carter, or that they wanted it to bomb once they found out Star Wars was on the market. I think it just made for a softer landing when they saw the writing on the wall for John Carter. And this created more of an incentive to go after Star Wars. Take out just a few of these blocks, and perhaps the Jenga set would remain. But with all of the blocks taken out, it crashes. After John Carter, Stan went back to animation. He did a sequel to his now classic film, Finding Nemo, this time around called Finding Dory, and of course, it was a massive success. Finding Dory grossed over $1 billion. Andrew was only going to executive produce the film, but after John Carter, he ended up directing it also. And so it was a nice kind of place to lick my wounds and just sort of get back into it and not not doubt myself as a as a filmmaker and were you but, doubting yourself i couldn't believe that stanton said this or admitted it yeah john carter bombed at the box office but dude two academy awards films that are up there in the history of cinema well i just was afraid that would happen and so i think i needed to just get right back up and 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 it was a chance to get right back up and keep filmmaking and um and so that that did the job yeah, a billion dollars will do that. But animated films take upwards of four years to complete. And Stan had the bug for live action. And so he began directing TV shows, in some ways less ambitious than a $250 million film, or at least it's not like he's writing and producing at the same time. Maybe Stan had wanted to bank more experience. The two episodes of TV he directed were for the hit show Stranger Things. 
Of course, I couldn't help but ask. While he's doing TV, is John Carter officially dead? Is there a way for it to continue? What would you say if I said in, in, in 20 years, you'll get the green light for John Carter too? And you'll be a very healthy 72 years <laughs> I see, old. I was already going there. <laughs> yeah, you're very healthy. Everything's good. Your wife okays it and, uh, and you get the green light. It's a little bittersweet because now that I, like the rest of the world, have become a, a fan of episodic TV and binging like everybody else and seeing no expense spared for something like Game of Thrones, I go, ah, you know, the, the Burroughs world is really meant to be done in that format. John Carter, the TV show. That's what I think. There's enough stories there and enough Whoa, world. there totally is. That you could, I think that's, I don't think it's meant to be a tentpole film. Um, I, 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 at least the way I, my mind saw it continuing on. None of us saw at the time in 2012 or 2010, you know, right. That 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 episodic TV would be sort of be the dominant form of entertainment, but it makes so much sense. It's it's closer to books. We've been reading books a lot longer than we've been watching movies. Yeah, and and there's no rule. Like, is this idea worth eight episodes, or is this idea worth three years of yeah. twelve episodes each? Like, it's it's like the book is as long as the book needs to be, and it has as many chapters as the book needs to be. And so now it's in service to what the story is, and that as a writer and a filmmaker is exciting you're no longer forced to go no matter what this idea is it has to be in a three-act yeah. structure that's 90 minutes or a little over that right. um not everything's meant to be and so i, I certainly you'd love podcasts yeah i know so <laughs> it's the wild west so i feel like um i feel like that world deserves to be uh rediscovered in that format that's that's my attitude about it and i don't have to do it i want to i want to but i would I, i'm back to being a fan i want i would love to see it happen. but you sh but you would do it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean i i i had three years living in that world yeah. and i fell in love with the idea of that cast and that storyline finishing off and i that can't happen anymore and so i don't know i i think i would rather see somebody else kick it off right my pitch a TV miniseries starring Lily Collins and Taylor Kitsch, titled The Princess of Mars. Something that has gotten lost in all of this is Princess of Mars is the original title. Through the years, way before Andrew Stanton got involved, it became known as John Carter of Mars. It's impossible to look at history and not run into overt sexism, but I guess that's obvious. While I was just about done researching and writing this episode, I saw a Hollywood Reporter article come out. It was about Stanton's directing live-action TV. Uh-oh, I thought. After the Netflix show Stranger Things, he's directed a few episodes of the hit show Better Call Saul. What did the headline say in Hollywood Reporter? Oscar-winning Pixar veteran Andrew Stanton has been on a TV tear. He's now getting praise. Unfortunately, he probably doesn't know he doesn't read reviews anymore. And so, if Stanton sticks to TV, and with the success he's having, I'd suggest that for my proposed TV miniseries, Princess of Mars, starring Lily Collins and Taylor Kitsch, we already have the perfect director, Andrew Stanton. And God willing, let's include CIA Sellers as a producer. Finally, my biggest takeaway... 
Brilliant people must have a vision, ingenuity, and other skills specific to their craft, but also a specific approach to losing. People like Andrew Stanton sometimes take losing better than they do winning. After Stanton's only box office flop, he just kept going. First an animated film, and then live-action TV. When I was done with my interview with Stanton at Pixar, he told me he was going to meet up with his wife to have a beer. After all, we had just talked exhaustively for two hours about the movie of his dreams that the world told him sucked. But, and you heard it here first, Andrew Stanton will win an Emmy or Golden Globe Award, the TV equivalent of an Academy Award, for his TV directing. And it won't be long. Finally, I looked up that Teddy Roosevelt quote that Bob Iger sent to Andrew Stanton. It's a bit long, but worth it. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly? So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls, who neither know victory nor defeat. In order to be truly brilliant, you need to know when things don't work out, look back on it, and consider what really happened. I've had so many people come up to me, and I mean all the time, that so, say, yeah. I really like this yeah. film. <laughs> and I always have to say, you don't have to whisper. Nobody. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Everybody instinctively whispers. A very special thank you on this episode to our podcast rookie, Alex Pepper who's also my uh, research assistant. An incredible job on this episode. Also, thank you to Shelby Shelb for helping out. Thank you to Michael Sellers. You can get his book, John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood on Amazon. Thank you so much to Brooks Barnes and Matt Singer for talking so honestly. Don't forget, go to jenkspod.com to give me feedback or jenkspod.com slash contributors to become a part of the team. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. Next week on What Really Happened, oh, we love royal weddings these days, future kings and queens. It's just brilliant. But what if I told you that sometime in the Middle Ages, there exists a king that history has forgotten, a king of France who decided in the midst of war, he'd abandon his own country and hang out, drink wine, and collect clocks in enemy territory. I found this king, and that's next week on What Really Happened.